0: In 1864, the famed frontiersman Kit Carson took a force of several hundred soldiers into the heart of the Yano Estacado in an attempt to punish the Comanche for the recent raids. What followed was a bloody fight now known as the First Battle of Adobe Walls, as Carson and his men kicked the hornet's nest and quickly found themselves outnumbered 10 to 1. We got a lot to cover and not a lot of time to do it. This episode's got something for everyone, y'all. We're going to talk Kit Carson. We're going to talk Army Tactics. Billy the Kid, the Navajo, the Apache, and of course the Comanche. Hell, we're even gonna trash talk New Mexico just for the fun of it. Who was Kit Carson? And why'd he go picking a fight with the Comanche on their home turf? Stick around and find out. My name's Danny McBride and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Well, hello there. My name's Josh, and I'm the host of the Wild West Extravaganza. Now that we got that awkwardness out of the way, let's just get right down to it. Back in 1864, the Comanche and their allies, namely the Kiowa and the Kiowa Apache, were making life difficult for travelers along the Santa Fe Trail. They were, as one military man put it, having a, quote, high carnival, going on to say that there was not a week that went by without some outrage being committed by them. And what's more, they weren't shy about it. The Comanche were boasting that they'd kill every white man that dared set foot on the road. And if General Carlton, the commander of Union forces in New Mexico, even so much as retaliated, they'd kill him too. Fact of the matter is, they had every reason to be bold. For the past few years, thanks to the Civil War, the whites had been back east fighting among themselves, leaving a whole lot of the frontier unprotected and open to raids. Hell, the entire line of the frontier was pushed back 100 miles during this time, at least down in Texas. And there was also speculation, still is speculation, that the Confederate Army in Texas had persuaded the Comanche to specifically target the Santa Fe Trail in an attempt to disrupt Union supply lines. Now, I found this really interesting, but I'm also a little skeptical. If there's one thing the Comanche hated, it was Texians. The idea that these two devoted enemies would all of a sudden join forces against the Union Army, eh, I found it a little unbelievable, so I looked into it. Turns out there was a treaty of sorts between the Comanche and the Confederates. In August of 1861, Albert Pike, a Confederate Indian agent, signed two treaties with two separate bands of Comanche. Treaties that promised not only friendship, but a whole bunch of trade goods. Goods which never came to fruition. Once the Comanche realized that the Confederate promises were empty, the raids intensified. I couldn't find out anything about them specifically targeting the Santa Fe Trail due to Confederate urgings, or just out of a deep desire to disrupt Union supply lines. If any of you listening are aware of any proof or documents stating such, please email me and let me know. God only knows how some of you love correcting me. And I like it too, don't get me wrong. And most of these episodes, I'm trying to learn right alongside all y'all. So if I do get anything wrong, please don't hesitate to call me out on it. I'm certainly no expert. Back to the story. The Comanche raids got so bad that finally General Carlton was forced to take action, sending a relatively unknown and historically insignificant guy by the name of Kit Carson to go deal with him. Now, this Kit Carson guy, I'd never really heard of him before. And frankly, I'm not impressed. Aside from today's story, I'm not familiar with him doing anything else worth noting. So, uh, sorry if y'all find this boring. Just bear with me. We will get through this episode, despite this dullard Carson slowing everything down. And hopefully those of you who haven't turned this off in disgust yet know that I'm just joking. I'm just joshing you. We love us some Kit Carson here on the Wild West Extravaganza. Very quick summary on Kit Carson leading up to the 1864 Battle of Adobe Walls. Christopher Kit Carson himself came west on the Santa Fe Trail back in 1826 at the young age of 16, fell in with a motley crew of mountain men and rode his way into the history books. Kit would spend well over the next decade making one hell of a name for himself as a fur trapper, as well as what some would call an Indian fighter. Carson may have been short in stature, he only stood 5 foot 5 inches tall, but he wasn't lacking in courage or grit as evidenced by his many engagements with hostile Native Americans, Mexican and Confederate soldiers, and a few unruly French trappers as well. And while he could neither read nor write, he wasn't lacking in the brains department either, unlike a certain podcast host I could uh, mention. Kid was fluent in both Spanish and French, and he could speak enough Native American dialects, as well as the universal plain sign language, that he was able to converse with anybody in any tribe out West. He may not have been able to read letters in a book, but he could read the weather. He could find game in watering holes, and he could smell an ambush. And by the time the Battle of Adobe Walls took place, he had the entire Western United States mapped out in his head. Kit Carson was a very capable man who led a very interesting life. If you'd like to learn more, I recommend checking out the book Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides. Great read, and I did use it for a lot of this episode's research. The crazy thing about Kit Carson was that he was one of those few men who lived long enough to see himself become a legend. And that was partly due to a guy named John Fremont. Also known as the Pathfinder, Fremont was an explorer, military officer, politician, and all-around eccentric. He first hired Kit to guide for him back in the early 1840s, and the two men would form a friendship that would last a lifetime. It was Fremont that got Kit involved with the military back during the Mexican-American War. And it was Vermont who would spread stories of his amazing mountain man scout far and wide, making Carson not only an esteemed guest at the White House on more than one occasion, but also a household name in just a matter of years. By the time the Civil War broke out, Kit was already famous and working as an Indian agent in New Mexico. A job he resigned in order to take a commission as lieutenant colonel in the Union Army. He and a bunch of his New Mexican volunteers saw action against the Confederates in the Battle of Valverde in early 1862 but this would be his only taste of combat against Johnny Reb. His particular talents were soon needed elsewhere, against the Mescalero Apache. Carson's commanding officer, the aforementioned General Carlton, ordered that the Mescalero, quote, must be brought to their brutal senses, even going so far as demanding of Kit that, quote, all Indian men of that tribe are to be killed whenever and wherever you can find them. The women and children are not to be harmed, but you will take them prisoner. If the Indians send in a flag and desire to treat for peace, Say that our hands are tied, and you have been sent to punish them for their treachery and their crimes, that you have no power to make peace, that you are there to kill them wherever you find them. End quote. Damn. How about you take a chill pill, General Carlton? By the way, this was an order that Kit Carson not only found appalling, but he also just flat-out refused to obey it. He'd go after the Mescalero, and if need be, he'd fight them. But he wasn't just going to go in and indiscriminately kill all those who wanted to surrender. Despite what many now believe of the man, that wasn't his style. Matter of fact, he would readily accept the surrender of over a hundred Mescalero men, fighting aged men, who sought refuge with him. But he did make quick work of the tribe, though. There's no denying that. According to author Hampton Sides, this campaign against the Mescalero was effectively over in just a month. Pretty soon, the entire band was all rounded up and sent to a brand new reservation known as the Bosque Redondo. Here's a fun fact for all you fans of Old West history. Fort Sumner, New Mexico, maybe you've heard of it, was constructed to not only provide protection for the settlers who dared venture into the Pecos River Valley, but to also watch after these Mescalero there at the Bosque Redondo. When the reservation proved to be a failure several years later, the army sold the fort and the land to a guy named Lucian Maxwell. About a decade after that, Lucian's son, Pete Maxwell, became friends with a young man named Henry McCarthy, alias William Antrim, also known as William H. Bonney alias Billy the Kid. And it's there in 1881 on that land, formerly the Bosque Redondo, where the Mescalero and the Navajo were sent after being defeated by Kit Carson in one of Pete Maxwell's buildings that Billy the Kid's life came to an end. So for all you tourists out there, if you've ever visited Billy's grave or Fort Sumner, that there was the Bosque Redondo. All right, let's get back on track. After dealing with the Mescalero, Kit was ordered to tackle the Navajo over Arizona way, in the Four Corners area. And he was basically given the same orders as before. There would be no talks of peace, shoot all the men on sight, and take the women and children captive. Now, this campaign wouldn't be quite as easy as the one against the Mescalero. And Carson would end up leading his men into the heart of Navajo country, and the sacred canyon de Shea. And although Carson once again ignored the orders to shoot all men on sight, he did wage a pretty brutal campaign, scorched earth style. He destroyed all the crops and supplies that he could find, eventually forcing thousands of Navajo with no choice but to surrender. Unfortunately, these people were then subjected to what's known as the Long Walk, or the Western Trail of Tears, where they were forced to march hundreds of miles to join the Mescalero at the Bosque Redondo. Needless to say, the Navajo did not enjoy their time in New Mexico. Hell, I don't blame them. you ever been to New Mexico? Land of enchantment my ass. Oh, I'm kidding, New Mexico, just playing around. More on the Navajo later, but today we're primarily talking about the first battle of adobe Walls. I'm just giving you all a quick rundown of events leading up to it. You know, a little bit of a backstory. Sometimes you got to go slow and do a little bit of history foreplay to get everything properly lubricated. You know what I mean? Can't just go in dry, you know, we got to make out a little bit first. Maybe play a little game of history stink finger. Okay, so right or wrong, Carson had been very successful against these two tribes, the Mescalero and the Navajo. It was only natural that it would be he who was chosen to lead the campaign punish the Comanche. Plus, remember, we're talking about a living legend here. However, the Comanche didn't much care about wide eye legends. And they weren't the Navajo either. And that's not me knocking the Navajo. The Diné are brave warriors, for a fact. But the Comanche, well, they're the damn Comanches. Let's just say they posed their own unique set of difficulties. And in 1864, despite already being decimated by several waves of European diseases, they still very much remained the lords of the southern plains. By the way, uh, if you've ever wondered just how far the Comanche could strike, I was just reading recently about how they raided the Mexican town of Tepec in 1852, hundreds of miles south of El Paso, Texas. And just in case you don't know, it's another 500 miles or so from El Paso north to get to the heart of Comanche territory. There was another account I read a couple years ago, and I can't remember the source, sorry, but I think it was a first-hand account of a captive who claimed their particular band of Comanche made it all the way up to present-day Wyoming during a raid. Wyoming to deep into Mexico, that's one hell of a reach. There's no wonder the army wanted to go after them. With that kind of striking power, regular, everyday people, including the Navajo and the Mescalero down there at Bosque Redondo, were constantly in danger. The Kiowa weren't no slouches either. And then there was the Kiowa Apache, also known as the Plains Apache. You don't hear too much about them, and it looks like they were never really a very large tribe. Their numbers were estimated at just 400 back in 1780, and uh, they moved on to the Southern Plains sometime around the year 1800 and became very close allies with the Kiowa, and by proxy, the Comanche. Three distinct tribes with a very common warrior culture. Don't get it twisted, though. Kit Carson knew all of this, and he was fully aware of what he was getting himself into. He'd dealt with the Comanche before in direct combat, and had even lost friends to him. And he knew the country they called home and was cognizant that this wasn't going to be no cakewalk. Unlike some of the more gung-ho or ego-driven military officers, Carson was under no illusions that he could just casually walk all over the Comanche. Still, though, General Carleton gave Kit the usual marching orders, saying, quote, You know I don't believe much in smoking with Indians. They must be made to fear us, or we can have no lasting peace. The plan was to strike the Comanche in their winter camps, kind of catch them with their pants down, so to speak. For a good chunk of the year, the Comanche would be spread far and wide, you know, dispersed into smaller groups, raiding, and hunting for buffalo. Come winter, though, they'd camp in large groups in extended villages. I guess the idea was that it'd be easier to attack them in one bunch and, and try to inflict the maximum amount of damage possible. If Carson could destroy their villages, you know, their lodges and their supplies, their stores of dried meat and buffalo robes, and the dead of the Texas Panhandle winter, then maybe, just maybe, they could be talked into surrendering. And so, with that plan in place, Colonel Kit Carson set out in mid-November of 1864 with around 400 men, 75 of whom were his trusty Ute scouts. Now, Kit knew the Ute well. He spent the better part of the 1850s as an agent for the Ute Reservation. There was a mutual respect there, and oftentimes, even when wearing the uniform of a United States officer, Carson preferred riding ahead with his Ute scouts. Funny story about these Utes. During the journey east to engage with the Comanche, every night when the men of the expedition would set up camp, the Ute would break out in their war dances. One soldier would later write, quote, Their groans and howlings became almost intolerable, it being kept up each night until nearly daybreak. The other 300 men under Carson's command were comprised of two companies of cavalry and one infantry. They were also lugging a couple of mountain howitzers along, just to be on the safe side. As you can see, Carson meant business. He wasn't just riding out to the Yano alone with nothing but his dick in his hand. All that said, it's worth pointing out that Kit Carson himself wasn't exactly in the greatest health. He had 55 years of hard living under his belt. His joints ached, his eyesight seemed to be fading, And most troubling of all were the lingering effects from an accident from four years prior. He had been hunting elk up in the mountains when his horse lost its footing, tangling Kit up in the reins as both man and beast tumbled down. The horse rolled over on Kit more than once, and he just wasn't the same no more after that. There was even some question as to whether or not he could even sit in the saddle anymore, yet here he was in 1864, riding east. And this ride east towards the land of the Comanche would take about two weeks, loosely following the Canadian River a route that brought back some not-so-pleasant memories for Kit Carson. The area in question was eastern New Mexico, a little over halfway between Albuquerque and Amarillo, not too far from present-day Interstate 40. Carson had been in this same spot 15 years before, looking to rescue a white woman named Ann White, who was taken captive by some hickory Apache. He found him, sure enough. I mean, he's Kit Carson, that's what he does. Unfortunately, the military men that were tagging along with him hesitated, losing the element of surprise. In the quick battle that followed, the Hikaria escaped, but not before dispatching poor Anne with an arrow through the heart. Remember earlier when I said Kit Carson was a living legend? Well, in this lady's possession was a book titled Kit Carson, The Prince of the Gold Hunters. Its contents full of made-up stories depicting Kit saving women just like her from the hostiles. This book was the first of its kind that I had ever seen, in which I was made a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Carson later said, Knowing that I live near, I have often thought that as Miss White read the book, she prayed for my appearance and that she would be saved. Dang. I gotta imagine that Ada Kit Carson over the years. And they were so close to rescuing her, too. You know, her body was still warm when they found her. Finally, Carson summarized his thoughts in the book with but a few words. Burn the damn thing. The kid and his company pushed on from that spot and soon enough found themselves on the Yano Estacado also known as the Staked Plains of the present-day Texas Panhandle, about a 100 miles northeast of present-day Amarillo, the heart of Comancheria. And sure enough, it wasn't too long before the Ute scouts caught sight of a village in the distance. The date was November 24th, a Thanksgiving that none in this party would ever forget. That night, Kid ordered his men forward in the cover of darkness, quietly, crossing the Canadian River and concealing themselves as they took up their positions. Finally, just a couple hours before dawn, Carson ordered one of his officers, a Major McCleave, to take a company of cavalry and strike the village. Turns out it was just a small Kiowa village, less than a couple hundred lodges, but still, Kiowa fought fiercely, allowing their women and children to escape before they followed suit. The soldiers under McCleave quickly destroyed the now-abandoned village, burning all the lodges and hundreds of newly-finished buffalo robes, robes that the Kiowa would need for the upcoming winter. They even found evidence suggesting that the Kiowa had some white captives, you know, women's clothing and some family photos, but no captives were ever found. Now, those Kiowa didn't just tuck tail and run away out of fear. Now, they were going for reinforcements in the much larger Comanche village downriver. Wasn't too long before McLeave was fighting off several hundred warriors who began charging at he and his men Comanche style, hollering and shooting arrows from under the bellies of their horses. Carson soon joined up with his officer and, seeing how outnumbered they were, directed the men to an old abandoned fort several hundred yards from the river, known as Adobe Walls. Now, this was an old trading post of sorts, once used by the Bent Brothers, but since abandoned. By 1864, it was mostly ruins, but it did offer up some protection. Quickly, Carson moved his entire command, including the two mountain howitzers, to the crumbling walls of the old post. The horses were corralled inside as his men set up a defensive perimeter. Just in time, it seems, as the horizon quickly filled with screaming warriors. Turns out there were way more Comanche in Kiowa than they had hoped for. Possibly more Comanche than any white man had yet seen in one place. With an estimated 1,400 warriors charging straight at him, Carson put those mountain howitzers of his to use. Throw a few shells into that crowd over there, Carson ordered, as the light artillery pieces began doing their thug thing. And like I keep saying, these were mountain howitzers. There were different sizes, but it appears that Carson had the 12-pounders. Now, you Civil War buffs probably know way more about these than I do, but they were used quite a bit in the West against the Native Americans. They were light enough that you could lug them around from behind a couple of horses without a good road underneath you. They could be loaded with exploding canisters or shot. And I'm not sure which the men under Carson were utilizing during the Battle of Adobe Walls, but I can assure you, based on the many videos on YouTube with reenactors firing howitzers, you did not want to be downrange of these bad boys. And I don't know if this was the first time, that artillery had ever been used against the Comanche, but it did stop them dead in their tracks, pushing them back out of range, momentarily at least, long enough for all the men to enjoy a nice lunch of salt pork and hard tack, and hopefully get a little bit of rest, something they hadn't done in over 20 hours. Now, Kit Carson may have been famous, but the man wasn't above making mistakes. In this case, he misjudged his opponents, and he didn't think they'd make another go of he and his men on that day. Matter of fact, he was planning on going on the offensive and leading an attack of his own downriver, taking each camp out one by one. Ah, but the warriors returned, and they brought friends with them. What was just around 1,400 warriors before was now at least 3,000, outnumbering Carson and his men almost 10 to 1. They were massing on the horizon, painted for war, and pissed the hell off. As the soldiers girded their loins and the Ute warriors sang their war songs, the combined force of Comanche, Kiowa, and Plains Apache thundered down. Upon adobe walls. Wave after wave of death was repulsed over the next few hours. As the outnumbered soldiers fought for their lives. Against the determined foe who sought to punish those. Who had come to punish them. Carson's men would turn one charge. Only to have another quickly follow from the opposite direction. And then there's the chaos and confusion that comes with combat. The stuff you'd imagine. You know the cracks of rifles. The boom of the cannon. The smoke and gunpowder choking your throat and stinging your eyes. Men screaming in pain and fear and excitement. Those youth scouts and their terrible war cries mixed with those of thousands of Comanche and Kiowa. And then during all this, toss in some dueling bugles. Yes, dueling bugles. Someone on the Comanche side had themselves an army bugle and they knew how to use it. When Carson's cavalry would sound advance, the Comanche bugler would sound retreat. And vice versa. You know, when the army would sound retreat, the Comanche would sound charge. As you can imagine, this caused all kinds of confusion for the soldiers until they finally figured out what the hell was going on. Like I said, this battle raged for hours, all throughout the day and into the evening. Carson's leadership, as well as those two light cannons, are likely the only things that prevented the men from being overran. Throughout the mayhem of war, Kit called on his men to remain calm. Focus on the direct threat, this incoming charge. Don't worry about those warriors massing over there. Worry about what's right here, right in front of your face. Don't falter. Keep fighting. Great advice, by the way, for anything you're facing in life. Sometimes it's easy to be overwhelmed by problems. Focus on the immediate. Take it one at a time. Don't quit. Anyway, Carson knew he and his men couldn't last forever. They were hunkered down at adobe walls. They only had so much ammunition, and he had a decision to make. Even as his own officers implored him to push forward and counterattack the Comanche villages, as previously planned, Carson instead chose to retreat. Kit wasn't no George Custer. He wasn't a glory seeker, and he never had been. He didn't even have the usual characteristic of being a teller of tall tales, like most of his mountain men brethren, and he damn sure knew when he bit off more than he could chew. Still, though, an attempted retreat didn't necessarily assure their survival. The soldiers were still greatly outnumbered, and they'd have to fight their way out of hell in an orderly manner if they were to have any chance of making it out alive. To just chaotically run for the hills, every man for himself, would guarantee massacre. No, this would be a disciplined, uniform retreat with Carson continuing to urge his men to remain steady, to not give in to fear. And that's just what they did. Remember, this wasn't Kit's first rodeo. He'd been in the proverbial shit many times over the past four decades. Came back from many a fight where things seemed to have been going wrong. In the words of Dan Doherty from HBO's Deadwood, going wrong is not the end of fucking things. A lesson Kit Carson knew all too well. He and his men soon struggled their way to the Canadian River, holding their horses in the middle, fighters flanking all sides of the long column, facing the charging Comanche, the two howitzers creaking along behind, poised for use. This retreat saw some of the fiercest fighting of the day. According to Carson, quote, The Indians charged so repeatedly and with such desperation that for some time I had serious doubts for the safety of my rear, end quote. Now, he was most likely talking about the safety of the rear of his column, But no doubt each and every man there had misgivings about the safety of their own damn rear ends. Pretty soon, just because why not? I mean, nobody ever said war was going to be easy. The Comanche set a grass fire on the banks of the river, engulfing the soldiers in smoke and using it as a screen of sorts to get in even closer. This forced Kid and his men out of the river and onto the bluffs. They were now more exposed, but at least they could see what the hell was coming up against them. And all the while, those two little cannons kept up their fire, pushing the angry warriors back as best they could. Finally, just as the sun was beginning to set, the Comanche relented. I guess they figured they had taught these white devils enough of a lesson for one day, and rode on back to their villages and their families. Nevertheless, Carson ordered his soldiers to keep moving, riding throughout the night and not stopping until the following day. When Kit finally ordered his exhausted men to set up camp, he himself had been on his horse for so long that when he took off the saddle, the horse's skin came off with it. And that there was the first battle of Adobe Walls. This fight is still, to this day, considered a toss-up as to who won, with both sides claiming victory. Kind of. And I guess this all depends on what your idea of victory is. Was Carson able to bring the Comanche to Hill in the same way that he did the Mescalero and the Navajo? Not by a long shot. Hell, it was almost a miracle that he was even able to get his men out of there alive. The natives that he and his men engaged with up there on the Canadian quickly turned the tables on their attackers and sent them headed for home. In that sense, it was clearly an Indian victory and the Comanche would remain the kings of their domain for several years to come. Matter of fact, as I'm sure many of you are aware, there was a second battle of Adobe Walls a decade later. I talked some about that fight in the episodes I did on Bat Masterson and Quanah Parker, if you want to give those a listen. However, if your interpretation of victory is survival, then I'd say Kid and his men did one heck of a job. Only three, possibly six soldiers, I did see different numbers, lost their lives during all that fighting, with 21 wounded and that was after being outnumbered 10 to 1. Whatever Carson did to hold his men in line and keep them steady during that retreat should probably be taught in military academies, if it isn't already. And by Native American standards, it was a Kit Carson victory as well. Tribes like the Comanche, they didn't think in terms of long military campaigns like the Whites did. A successful raid for them was to go into enemy territory, strike quickly and do as much damage as you can with as little loss to your side as possible, and then get the hell back home. By all accounts, this is exactly what Kit and his men did. His group of soldiers only lost a handful of men. The so-called hostiles, though, weren't so lucky. Depending on which sources you believe, they lost somewhere between 50 to 200 warriors. The army obviously considered it a victory. I mean, what else is new, right? The pencil pushers always know how to make things sound better than they are. General Carleton said it was a brilliant affair and praised Carson for how he, quote, met so formidable an enemy and defeated him saying that the battle was another green leaf to the laurel wreath which you have so nobly won in service to your country. So what did Kit Carson think of the first battle of Adobe Walls? Was it a W or an L? Well, in his own words, it's pretty evident. Quote, The Indians whipped me in that fight. End quote. So there y'all have it. Thank you all so much for listening and putting up with me. Do me a favor, if you like this episode, share it with somebody. Do you or anyone you know suffer from mesophilioma? Well, I can't help you there, but, you know, give them a little bit of Wild West extravaganza and brighten their day. How about plantar fasciitis? Maybe you've been exposed to asbestos. Try a little bit of Wild West extravaganza. And please, wherever you're listening, hit that subscribe or follow button. Stick around for future episodes. If you're new, go check out my previous episodes. You can find them all on my website, wildwestextra.com. While you're there, hit that contact button and shoot me an email. Tell me what I got wrong or how annoying you think my voice is or how disappointed Jesus is in me using naughty, naughty bad words to describe violent portions of our history. All you animals on YouTube, holy crap. That last episode on Alfago Baca has like 13,000 views already. I have no idea how the hell that happened. Speaking of YouTube, someone left a comment on uh, one of my air quotes videos a while back. And I went to look for it, but I couldn't find it. So sorry if I don't mention your name. But whoever this was said that they were a retired Master Sergeant and said that they could tell I was in the military but just haven't heard me mention it yet. Thank you, Master Sergeant, for your service and your kind words, but no, I was never in the military. I wasn't even in the Boy Scouts. So while I do consider that high praise, it's praise that I cannot claim. My father did serve, though, in Vietnam, and I've got several friends who did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. All right, what else we got? Uh, been getting a lot of downloads from Australia lately, so shout out to all you dingoes down there eating babies. And finally, I know I keep promising, the Chief Joseph episode, and it is on the way. You got my word on that. The wait will not be much longer. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. Try not to bite off more than you can chew or go kick in a horn's nest full of Comanche this week. And if you do, make sure you bring a couple of mountain howitzers with you. You're going to need them along with two big brass balls like the kind Kit Carson has swinging between his legs. Adios.